0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that likes to bring the news before it becomes news, because that's what we do best, as well as insight and analysis on all the topics you're talking about in the game. I'm Ian and with me as always is our transfer guru, Duncan Castles. Uh, today is Monday's pod, we've got big news to start with Liverpool. We'll be going on to talk about uh, Mario Mandzukic, Man United. Of course, where would it be without Valerie, our old friend VAR, and a bit of Manchester United, as well as heroes and villains. First of all, though, those of you listen to Friday's pod will remember our German colleague, Rafi Honigstein, telling us a bit more about Timo Werner, who is a target for both Manchester United and Liverpool in the January window, but it may be the summer before he actually makes the move. Now, Rafi told us that it was widely believed the player has a rescission clause in his contract, though no one as yet knows what it is. But what we can tell you on the transfer window today is that Liverpool have begun the process of formal negotiations with RB Leipzig for the player's transfer. We understand that contact has been made and indeed is ongoing between Liverpool and the German Bundesliga side and that Werner himself is keen for a move to Anfield where, of course, he would link up with countryman Jurgen Klopp. Now, interestingly, Duncan, um, one of the things that uh, we've also been told with regards to potential deal, uh, Rafi, remember, told us on Friday that uh, Werner was extremely disappointed that he's moved to Bayern Munich. Uh, effectively broke down and completely disappeared into the ether last summer uh, and has been quite unhappy uh, at Leipzig since, well, Liverpool are trying to make that a bit better for both the player and his club because it has been suggested that uh, they would buy the player in the January window and then he would be loaned back to RB Leipzig for the uh, remainder of the Bundesliga season, allowing Leipzig obviously to get good five months out of the player allows the player to put the disappointment of the Munich transfer uh, disintegrating behind him, gives him obviously impetus and motivation. Duncan, this is something we've seen with Liverpool before and you've been very praiseworthy of the way that they conduct transfers these days in terms of both their planning and execution. Yes,
1: Liverpool are extremely focused in the players they pursue. Um, You have their analytics department using um, statistical methods to sift down to uh, a a cohort of players they think are potential Liverpool signings, have the the qualities required in terms of... um, goal production and by goal production I don't simply mean scoring goals or assisting goals it's they they actually focus on um, every pass a player makes during a game to see whether that um uh, increases the likelihood of a goal being scored or decreases the likelihood of a, a goal being scored. And that's one of the fundamental analytical elements um, that they use to to uh, secure a group of players who their scouts then do further work on um, in a more traditional manner to decide whether they're the right signings. They're also very focused on players who they can actually secure. Um, so they tend to go to clubs like Leipzig, um, like Roma, where they know that um, if they meet a certain price, um, that club will sell to them as opposed to targeting players at uh, clubs who are on the same tier as them in European competition who, who are likely to outright refuse to, to sell the player. Um, as you say, they've Taking this, a similar type of approach to this before with Nabi Keita, um, identifying him as the midfielder they wanted to add creativity, um, to uh, the central area of the team and setting a deal up with Leipzig. uh, Basically, a year in advance, um, which was in, in Keta's case dependent on where Leipzig finished in the Bundesliga season, but was for a very substantial amount of money, um, and and came with an element of risk because, of course, if you if you agree to that deal in advance, you you have the risk of the player being injured during the season in which you're waiting for him to come. Um, Werner, as uh, Rafi explained on the podcast, on Friday's podcast, and I'd recommend the listeners to go back and, and listen to it again. Um, he feels Werner would be a better fit to Liverpool's system, than Manchester United's. Um, he explained that Werner's pretty similar to, uh, Rashford and Martial in, in being a striker who, uh, who needs a reference point and prefers to play, um, off other forwards. Whereas he could see him fitting into Liverpool's sort of very mobile strike force, um, as a natural replacement uh, for one of the individuals they have in there, Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino or or uh, Mohamed Salah uh, at present. So um, you have to say that if Liverpool have already begun discussions with Leipzig for, to secure this player, um And they can offer a deal in which they allow the player to remain with Leipzig for the remainder of the season and Leipzig are guaranteed their cash um, in January, that they would have a significant advantage over Manchester United who are on record as saying that they want to bring new forwards in. In January, um, to try and repair the, the damage that's been caused by the early start to the season and who, of course, cannot offer anything like as attractive a football prospect as Liverpool can. Um, you know, the choice for the, the player would be go to a team who are struggling, um, even to get into the places for uh, a Europa League qualification never mind Champions League qualification Who haven't been there this year or go to the current European champions um, who are uh, six points clear in the Premier League and uh, very much um, looking like they can end that 30-year wait to win um, an English title uh, for uh, the first time in, the, in those three decades so I um, as well as the attraction of working for Jurgen Klopp. I think if you were to go to any high-level footballer um, at present and say to them your choice is to play for Jurgen Klopp, um, who has been successful in German football and has taken Liverpool to European Cup and top of the Premier League, or you play for Ullugun Solskjaer, whose um, history pre-Manchester United, is getting uh, Cardiff City relegated and uh, some uh, degree of success in Norway, uh, that would be a very easy choice for any player, I think, uh, at that level of football um, across Europe. And interestingly, Duncan, um, in the
0: discussions that I had regarding this uh, progress in terms of Liverpool's interest in Timo Werner from RB Leipzig, it was mentioned to me that... um, Klopp and I think we we did uh, discuss this after the Champions League win. Klopp was determined to keep faith with the the, t- the team and the squad that he had because he felt they got so close to win the Premier League title last season. They did go on to win the Champions League final, massive thing for them to get that first trophy as a team as well. And um, but now he realizes that the lack of investment in the summer didn't maybe freshen the squad up uh, in a way that perhaps would have been beneficial. And uh, while he's very happy and extremely uh, trustworthy in terms of the players he has and the relationship he has with them, that it may be the right time to bring a player like Werner in who, if there's an injury, a suspension, or indeed just a little bit of tiredness, never mind burnout, in the Firmino, Sala Mane and the attacking three, then he would be able to bring in a player of similar, if not same, talent and status, to replace one of them and actually be able to do something he's not been able to do before, and that's rotate and give the players a rest in order that everyone's always going to be at the peak of fitness, the peak of sharpness in terms of coming back into play. And Werner can play across all three positions, though he does prefer to play, as you said, coming in from the flank. Now, given how important, you know, the three front players are to Liverpool and the way they play I think Shakiri was brought in to potentially be someone who could take one of those spaces but clearly his mobility and speed are not up to it he's certainly got a good eye for a pass but he can't keep pace with the kind of attacking fluence that Liverpool had so Shakiri's obviously finding himself on the bench he's unhappy it wouldn't surprise me if there was interest in Shakiri in January and indeed if he left the club in the next seven or eight months anyway. Now, of course that would free up a space for Werner and the squad not that of course he would have any difficulty finding a place, but my point being that Liverpool would simply go from strength to strength if Werner uh, was to be secured uh, whether it be in January or indeed, um, as has been mooted uh, being loaned back to RB Leipzig in January and then coming for pre-season training and a proper induction into Liverpool's team next summer.
1: Well, there's two elements here. Liverpool have had remarkable success in keeping those players, Salah, Firmino, um, Mane in particular, on the pitch um, through a a period in which there's been huge demands on all of them, um, both at club level and international level. Um, and we've discussed a little bit about this in the, in the podcast and the way that um, Klopp's gone from having lots of injuries when he first came into Liverpool to having very few injuries in a team that is extremely dynamic on the field. But you always run the risk, as you say, if you, if you only have three players for those three positions, that one of them eventually does come down with... a. Uh, a significant soft tissue injury and is left out of the side for a while. Or you have that risk that any player has of, um, of being injured by an opponent or, um, in a, and having a ligament damaged in a contact injury. Um, as it stands, um, the options for Jurgen Klopp are, um, Shakiri, who, as you say, he seems to have lost faith in and who, who isn't, certainly isn't a like for like replacement for those three. Or Diva Karigi, who again, um, is not like for like replacement, has been valuable to him, did score a lot of important goals last season. Um, but by the same token, you saw the way he came in against Manchester United, um, when Salah, uh, was out for uh, a brief period and had a very poor game. Uh, against United and and I think it's it's fair to argue was responsible for um, Liverpool not being as fluid in attack as as you normally expect them to be. The other element of this is we know that that Liverpool were pursuing um, a replacement striker um, of a similar type in the last transfer window. Um, We know that there was contact made with uh, Nicola Pepe's agent to sound him out about the possibility of uh, coming to Liverpool, there was no bid made to Leo, but the understanding of both Pepe's representatives and Leo was that Liverpool were pursuing this in case they needed to buy a replacement. And the in case that they were worried about was that a very significant offer came in for Mohamed Salah, which Salah chose to pursue. Um, and then a decision would have to be made. Um, over whether they allow the player to go cash in with a huge profit on transfer fees, which is something that they've clearly done in the past um, with someone like Philippe Coutinho um, and, uh, and, and, and bring in a player who they believed could achieve the, the same in that area. So when you see them looking for Werner, I think you have to have uh, a consideration that this could be um, also... Um, thought of as Liverpool on the possibility that Salah might push for that move again this summer, um, that one of the, the the very affluent clubs in European football put down an offer that attracts them, and therefore they're having the replacement set up in advance. So they, they they could win either way. You 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 bring Werner in at a defined release clause, um, and have him as a force. Member of um, that to interchange with that triumvirate if, if Salah and Mane stay, or you have a ready-made replacement if one of them leaves in the summer. So again, it's it's kind of intelligent. Um, it's the way clubs should be operating. Where you expect clubs at the top of the European and English game to operate is, is examine the future and um, and use your resources to have options set up far in advance. Uh, when you need to get them in and, you know, contrast that with Manchester United who get two weeks or two months into, uh, first season with, uh, their new manager in place and start talking publicly about how they need to get a top level striker in in the January window because they've realised that they don't have enough bodies, um, having followed a particular strategy in the summer that they elected to follow, which was to sell their um, leading scorer over the, the, the previous two seasons and, and change the style of play. The contrast there is just self-evident.
0: Well, in, on that uh, theme, Duncan, perhaps, uh, Jardin Shakiri for Manchester United is a good show. After all, he does have the X factor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's what Edward Ward obviously has said. He, uh, he covets in his signings, so Jardin... Get yourself down the M62, son. There might be a place for your old Trafford. Uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to ask you guys who are listening. Uh, you know it's your questions answered on Wednesday's pod. So please get in touch, give us your questions. Liverpool fans, what do you think? Do you think Timo Werner would be a good fit for your team? Or do you think it might uh, upset the current uh, front three if they were had to be challenged by a young buck who scores lots of goals and has got pace to burn? Uh, similarly, uh, for those of you, I and mean, I'm sure you were all watching um, the two-one victory over Spurs last Sunday. What about um, Liverpool without Matip? Because I thought Lovren was poor and cost you chances, etc., etc. You know, how are you going to solve that problem in central defence? Is it going to be Joe Gomez? Get in touch. Let us know. As you know, we'd love to get your questions and we'd love to give you answers as best we can. From one striker Duncan to another and you have some interesting news on uh, the wandering Croatian Mario Mandzukic who uh, is someone who has been wanted by Manchester United both in the summer and indeed in the next window potentially but an offer maybe out of left field but certainly one he would
1: consider is that correct? Yeah, so Mario Mandzukic is very much on the transfer market. As you said, in the summer, he there was a possibility he would move to Manchester United. Um, that was as part of a complex deal um, in which Manchester United offered Romelu Lukaku to Juventus. Uh, when they felt Internationale were not going to meet their asking price for Lukaku and they wanted to get another uh, potential buyer involved as a way of offloading um, Lukaku from from their wage bill. Um, so the deal proposed was Lukaku to Juventus, Dybala to Manchester United and Juventus uh, said we will do that deal if you take Mario Mandzukic off our hands as well, which United considered. um, As we reported on the podcast at the time, it fell through over financial terms um, for Dybala uh, and eventually Lukaku was sold to Inter instead. Um, Mandzukic since then has not played a game for Juventus um, at all this season um, and has even been left out uh, completely unregistered for their Champions League squad so um, the new co- coach Maurizio Sarri made a decision in terms of his forward players and his preference when Dybala decided he wanted to remain in Italy and uh, the attempts to move him to Manchester United and uh, Tottenham Hotspur uh, in particular fell through. Sarri's decision was I want to use Dybala as uh, one of my uh, forward options and Matsukic can be left on the side. Um, so You've had these discussions that Manam could be a, an option for Manchester United in January. I think, um, it's pretty clear why that's the case, because Juventus are prepared to sell. Um, he currently, I can tell he has an offer from Qatar, um, to move to the league leaders in the Qatar Stars League, uh, Duhel. Um, and that offer would see him earn in the region of seven and a half million euros net per season. Interestingly, um, two million euros of that salary would be subsidized by Juventus, which gives you an indication of how keen they are to get Manzukic, who has a history of being on top of a very talented striker who scored goals everywhere he's been, um, of being a very difficult individual to manage and not the kind of player you want to have um, sat on the bench um, and uh, complaining in the training ground about his lack of opportunities. So um, you have an option there for Mandzukic, um if Manchester United to decide to go down that line because he's available um, I think it tells you that it's going to be a costly deal to do um, obviously they have they in this case they have a, an advantage and they can offer the player continued uh, prominence in European football um, going to a major club um, playing in a new league but on the other hand there is big money on offer for him to go to Qatar um, which United will have to compete with if they want to try and secure him uh, in January,
0: and of course, um, the offer from particular club is managed by someone who is familiar to all of us, Duncan Rui Ferreira.
1: Indeed, yes. So Rui Ferreira, in his first full season in uh, in Qatar, has taken De to the to the top of the division. Um, already won the Emir Cup um, in his uh, in the half season he was with the club. Uh, last year um, selected for that job by um, the Emir of Qatar who is an extremely influential figure in in European and world football as the man who uh, owns Paris Saint-germain uh, and the man who sanctioned the the two most expensive transfers in the in the history of the game um, and Faria um, I as well on top of that impressive start in Qatar which I think people who have followed his career as an assistant to Jose Mourinho at an array of top clubs will not be surprised about um, has been pursued by a number of uh, Premier League clubs before he, he went there um, was offered the job at Aston Villa um, and Uh, turned that down, albeit they were still in the championship then, Uh, was approached by Southampton, um, was wanted by Monaco uh, to take over there. Uh, Other offers from France. um, I've had offers uh, on a repeated basis in in Portuguese football. Uh, And I think um, down the line, uh, I would expect to see him Coaching in the Premier League, such as his abilities and um, and the degree of interest there is in his services from English clubs.
0: Well, we're getting towards uh, Halloween, Duncan, and also um, November the fifth, and of course November international breaks coming up. Generally regarded as the graveyard for struggling managers in the Premier League. November international break because, of course, it's the last one before the January window. Do you trust your current coach to invest your cash in the January window and get you out of trouble or indeed improve uh, your position in the Premier League? I just wonder if there's a couple of clubs that may interest Rui Faria, although in saying that, I think um, Rui's demonstrated already that he is someone who is a uh, very very thoughtful considered and makes intelligent decisions about his career long term rather than a coach and there are many of them who simply jump into a job at the sight of a lucrative salary being put in front of them
1: yeah look I, I think that's that's very much the case with with Faria um Having won the Champions League twice, won, I think it's 20 major trophies during his career as, um, you know, a key assistant to Mourinho, who was, uh, fundamental in the way the teams were managed and, and the way the teams were trained in particular. Um, the, his consideration is, I want to, when I, when I start coaching, in European club football, I want to coach somewhere, uh, where I can be successful. So the, he, he's seen how difficult it can be at certain clubs and how important the support and the quality of players available to you are. And in, in terms of, uh, meeting, uh, the expectations of the owners, meeting the expectation of the supporters and, and has an awareness that that first appointment can have a very big influence on your on your future career. So the, the proposal has to be right. Um, obviously, um, when someone goes to coach in Qatar and are uh, hand-picked by the Emir of Qatar, one of the richest people in the world, they will be re- well-rewarded for um, their work there, which means that uh, on top of having to convince someone like Faria that the position you're offering him is a good one to come to um you also have to take on the fact that um, he has a a well-paid contract in qatar and it would be um, expensive to to achieve his release from that so I think that that's going to be the important element um, for Premier League clubs pursuing them I mean other clubs that have uh, I looked at him, he was listed for the Arsenal job uh, before Unai Emery was appointed um, Newcastle um, made an approach um, via a third party for him um, when uh, Rafa Benitez it became clear that Rafa Benitez was going to leave so you, you see the calibre of clubs involved there and um, and uh and in i think an interesting' i don't think there are many comparable figures in world football at the moment in terms of someone who's had such a long career and successful career as an assistant um and therefore has a, a huge degree of experience in in the job uh, and a track record of success and uh and then you 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 have this opportunity to see how he will. Uh, perform when stepping up to the manager's role, and from what the evidence in Qatar is, that um, that that jump to the manager's role has been one he's taken very well because he wins the the first trophy he had a proper opportunity to win and is top of the league in uh, in a team that is not as well resourced and doesn't have a strong squad as, uh, for example, Al Saad. Uh, the current Qatari champions who are managed at present by um, another very famous figure in world football, Xavi. Indeed they are. And Xavi has
0: been there, I think almost three years now. So clearly he enjoys what he's doing there. And um, again, someone I think will be looking out for Duncan, just like Rui, who will at some point come back to Europe and manage a big club as
1: well. Well, Graham Hunter's uh, excellent film about Barcelona, um, had a very prominent role with Xavi talking about tactics in, a, in a, an interesting and compelling fashion and the suggestion that he might well be a future Barcelona coach. Um, he has been there in Qatar for a while. He was a player up until uh, the end of last season and this is his first campaign as, uh, as the manager of uh, Arsad.
0: Now, it was a very eventful weekend in the Premier League. I'm sure you'll all agree. Um, It started off with a scintillating and record-equally 9-0 win for Brendan Rodgers, Leicester City against Southampton on Friday night, followed by what can only be ascribed as another uh, defining weekend uh, for football's new technology Um, after admitting mistakes in previous matches. And remember... We're 10 games in, people. Uh, It seemed like those who are uh, in control, if indeed uh, VR has any control whatsoever, maybe VR's controlling the PGMOL. We're not sure anymore. Um, (laughs) But uh, it could be the case. It's like... uh, Uh, I don't know, it's like the Terminator, isn't it, where the machines overtake the human beings (laughs) artificial intelligence rules. So um, at the risk of sounding like a a broken record, uh, because we don't like that, Valerie, especially Amy Weiner's version, is one that I would certainly listen to again and again. Um, Duncan, I mean, how do we even make sense of some of the decisions uh, over the weekend? Because they seem nonsensical. Uh, Personally, I feel now that we're in a position where that the people who have invested so heavily in VAR are so hell-bent and desperate to justify it that they are effectively not allowing the referees to contradict VAR. Now, you may not share that point of view, but I know you saw what everyone saw at the weekend and you were just,
1: I don't know, were you befuddled by it? Um, Look, I'm not surprised because... um... We've, we've said on the podcast from the very start that VAR was a bad idea and predicted a lot of the problems we'd have with it. Um, the So another weekend of errors is um, completely expected. The element that did catch me um, unawares was it seems to me that the Premier League has gone back on its... Um, policy that it it brought the AR in with which was minimum intervention um, a high bar for any decision to be overruled which has caused a lot of controversy in itself uh, and suddenly got itself into a position where it was turning over things that were absolutely not clear and obvious errors Um, the Arsenal's uh, what would have been winning goal against Crystal Palace um, where was the foul uh, that, that was used to to chalk off Arsenal's goal? If anything, watching the replay that was poured over by the VAR before deciding that the referee had got it wrong in the field, Gary Cahill was fouling the Arsenal player, who I would presume was a judge to have fouled in the build-up to the goal. Um, definitely not clear and obvious. You've got uh, the penalty that was given to Manchester United, um when Daniel James uh essentially fell into Ben Godfrey's body, um, which even Uliguner Solshar said he did not think that should have been overruled and it was wrong. It shouldn't have been a penalty and, it, and, and complained about the length of time it took uh, to to get to that decision. And remember, not only are you giving a penalty there, you're giving a yellow card to the defender in question, which um, obviously affects the way he plays for the rest of the, the game. Um, the other penalty Manchester United got was marginal, Um, probably just about justified under the new rules in terms of um, unnatural position of the arm. But the player had his back to the shot. Um, So again, clear and obvious error. I'm not sure it was a clear and obvious error. You have the Manchester City-Aston Villa game where we um, had a, a delay of over two minutes while... The VAR poured over um, a goal in fine detail, which was given onside correctly, uh, in my view, um, by the linesman and by the referee, uh, and came to the same conclusion as the linesman and the referee in the end. But uh, if it takes two and a half minutes to review, there clearly isn't a clear and obvious error <laughs> to be checked there. Um, it, you know, as you say, we've we've talked about this in detail. Uh, If you want to go through the very many problems of VR, refer people back to um, previous podcasts, to the piece I did for the Daily Record, I think almost a year ago now. Um, There isn't a solution to this. I hear people saying, oh, it needs to bed in, they need to alter the way they're applying the system. I think this weekend has showed us that when you alter the way you're applying the system, because if it... If they haven't altered the way they applied the system over the weekend, then it's even more of a travesty what happened because the, the, the VARs clearly weren't implementing the, the regulations or the guidance that the Premier League started the season with properly this weekend. But assuming they did change it, what it shows you is even when you change it, you get problems. There isn't a perfect implementation of this. It will always be controversial. Um, the game would be better off without it.
0: Duncan, as, as part of um, my research, and I know you're the same in terms of our diligence with regards to making sure we're up to date with everything that's going on, not just in the, in the game in the UK, but also um, in Europe and worldwide. I, I do try to watch a bit of highlights and you know news from places like the Bundesliga and even MLS. And every time there's a VAR decision, the referee goes to the screen at the side of the pitch and looks at it for himself. Not once has the referee in the English Premier League looked at the monitor despite it being there looking sad and lonely because <laughs> no one, because no one ever consults him no one ever goes to say hello no one sends him flowers i mean why is this this is ridiculous surely if the referee does have the ability to um, at least have a debate with the video assistant referee then they must use the monitor to do so rather than just simply taking it as red that someone in a truck you know near Heathrow has got it right and I've got it wrong even though I'm three yards away from it
1: well look I have sympathy with the Premier League's decision or PGMOL's decision to try and avoid using the monitors at all cost because that that, that calcul- the calculation was that it waste time it breaks up the flow of the, the match and that's correct um so I have a sympathy why they introduced that and I also have sympathy why they uh, wanted to use the high bar criteria um, because...
0: Yeah. Okay, sorry, Duncan, sorry, I don't want, I'm going to interrupt you there because I want to ask you, it's, I think it's an important question that our listeners will be asking as well. Yes, it does hold up the game, but why doesn't the referee immediately go to the monitor and watch what VAR are then looking at as they look at it and talk to him in his ear? because he can see what they're seeing if he goes to the monitor. Therefore, there's no further hold-up because he's only
1: watching what they're watching at the same time. A lot, a lot of these checks are done in the background, so I suppose you could do that with the goal check because he, he is told to hold up um, play while a goal is being checked. So in those instances, yeah, the argument you you do have a good argument. You could allow the, the referee to go to the screen, and watch while they're going through the goal check, and that would probably only have a minimal hold up in play in terms of the time it takes them to get to the monitor, get away from the monitor after that's finished. Um, but if you do it in other circumstances, when when play is going on, so when you're you're correcting. Um, A decision on a foul or, um, other elements of play that VAR monitors, then it is going to have a huge impact on play. And as I say, I have, I have sympathy with the the attempted implementation, which is to try and keep the game as fluid as possible and try and remain with the referee's decision on the field as much as possible. But again, this just highlights that it's a system you can't implement properly. You will always get controversy because you, you can go down that route of let's try and keep it as fluid as possible. And the re- response is, oh, but you've got to let the referee make a decision in the really controversial ones. So get them to go to the screen. And then so the argument is, okay, well we let them go to the screen on the really controversial ones. Who decides what the really controversial ones are? When do you have them going to the screen? How much time do you allow them to go to the screen? It, whatever way you run the system, you get a problem. And, and the controversy will be there re- regardless of the implementation because the majority of the key rules in football are subjective. Um, and just allowing a person to have another view doesn't change the fact they're subjective. Or allowing three people to debate over the decision while watching video doesn't change the fact they're subjective. Obviously with VAR you get more decisions right. But as we've said before, even on FIFA's own statistics, the, and, and these are pretty biased statistics, um, the increase in correct decisions in the areas in which VR um, uh, overlooks on FIFA's own statistics is only 4%. So is it worth um, for a marginal gain in terms of getting correct decisions, having all the controversy and all the problems it causes, all the cost it causes, I don't think it is. I always thought that was the case. Nothing I've seen watching VAR being implemented as um, suggested to me. I was wrong about that initial conclusion. Um, and I don't see a solution.
0: One of the huge uh, things that still remains a problem of VAR, of course, is the fact that the crowd inside the stadium, uh, and including the coaches, it should be said, um, are kept in the dark while these um, Incidents are being analysed by the VAR, as well as the decisions being made. Now, Duncan, the precursors, or at least the, the trailblazers, if you like, for VAR, are in uh, cricket, rugby union, and even the NFL. And in all three cases, the big screens inside the stadium... See what the VAR, or let's just say the televised umpire, because we have to go across all three here. See what they're, see what, not just what they're looking at, but what they hear, what they're saying. And mm-hmm. therefore they know, they feel involved in the decision. And it does add, I've been at NFL, I've been at cricket, I've been at rugby, where these things have, have intervened. And you feel like you're part of the drama as the current, you're not being excluded from it. You're being you're part of the decision-making process because at least you can see for yourself what it is that are actually analyzing. But huge complaints still. And I'm not out to do you know public relations work for Valerie. But if I were to, I would say this is one easy change you could make, and that is to put it on screen with uh the volume up as well. And then you have the referee with a microphone, like it happens in NFL, like it happens uh, in uh, rugby, is rugby union as well turn on his mic and explain to everyone in the stadium why the decision was made, overturned whatever and what decision is now at the moment all we get and it's a classic isn't it, it's like the old um, the old school pictures and newspapers of managers when they're talking about transfers, pictured on the telephone to an agent or a player Instead, we get the referees holding the earpiece to their ear, waiting intently for VAR to make a decision and then all they do is point and say, right, it's a penalty, it's not a penalty, it's a corner, not a foul, or whatever. I feel like if they just, if they wanted to make something right about it, that would be a very easy way to do it.
1: Look, I, I, again, I have a huge amount of sympathy with the people in the stadium who are placed in that position and they don't understand what's going on. I also people watching on TV because they don't have the audio to understand the discussion. But, you know, let's do a thought experiment of what happens if you turn on the audio and you show the video. Um, (laughs) Football has a long history of not allowing referees to explain their decisions. And that's been, uh, it's a considered history in terms of not dragging referees into media debates after every match um, and undermining them uh, by... Allowing them to go on record. And, you know, if you, if you allow referees to be interrogated by the, the media after every game, referees are going to make errors of judgment in what they say and they'll be held against them. Football also avoids showing replays of controversial incidents. Um, the th- reasoning being that that could cause crowd problems. Um, and that's again, it's a long standing element, uh, of the process. So, you know, you turn on the audio during a match. And you're risking both of those things straight away. You're, you're putting the the referees' um, discussions of whether it was a foul or not. And a lot of these are going to be marginal discussions and, and they're not going to be able to avoid making it clear that it's a marginal discussion where they have to come to a decision one way or another at the end. That's going to be on record. So we're going to have, uh, he gave a penalty, but he wasn't really sure about the penalty and he had to be convinced to give it. Uh, When you get these marginal decisions,
0: but Duncan, but Duncan, excuse me for interrupting. That's not what happens in those other sports I mentioned. The referee says, or at least the televised umpire says, original decision on the field was. Then they go to the analysis. Mm-hmm. And they do the rock and roll camera, whether it's this or that, such as in cricket or in uh, TMO and rugby union, as we saw in the semifinals over last weekend as well. So the referee had, makes no point of discussing his decision at any point during that part of the process. He then takes instruction on the basis of what the video referee has seen. And then he gives his verdict and then they say, stick with the original decision or change your decision to this. And all he does is explain. So in the case of the goal that wasn't given for Arsenal, he will say, uh, Red 16, Callum Chambers, a judge to have fouled uh, Gary Cale in the build-up to the goal. The decision is no goal. That's all he says. So there's nothing that can be seen as incendiary or provocative from the referee's point of view. He's simply reporting what the discussion that's happened with the video referee.
1: Well, that's a different argument then because you're not putting the audio of the full discussion... Um, making it available to the fans, which is what you're proposing would be a, a better no, no, no. answer.
0: I, no, I, I'm, I'm proposing that they do it the same as the, the examples in cricket and rugby, whereby you hear the video referees' yeah. audio. That's all. Yeah. There's no discussion with the on-field referee. They just state what the original decision was and why, if they even do that. And then they're told, after analysis, this is what is the case. You can stick with your original decision, or we suggest, or you must re- revise that to this. And this is the reason why. In this case, you know Arsenal sixteen Fouls Palace. I don't know K L S four. Therefore, no goal.
1: Well, then you take away the element of the VAR being able to discuss with the referee because he can't allow the referee can't allow his opinion to be. Stated And the discussion to take place because the, uh, the crowd would be able to hear it. You're also showing the video. And once you show the video to the crowd, which is going to be in most cases 90% home biased, you have a crowd watching the video, putting pressure on the referee over the decision and and if you have the audio as well you add that element of the pressure so so the, the the video referees says i think it's a foul against the home team for these reasons and therefore not a goal how's the crowd going to respond and and it's a it, we know that this is this very straightforward scientific evidence well demonstrated of a home crowd effect on referees decision as it is so you 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 take it away from that effect In the moment um, which is how it happens in a a normal game and the referee responding in the moment uh, and you you put it in a situation where everyone in the stadium sees a replay of it and hears the discussion of whether it should be a foul or not and effect and is allowed a voice very much allowed a voice in that process while the referee is actually having to come to a final decision it sounds great in principle, the idea of you, you let them know you have complete openness. You let them know everything going on. But again, the repercussions of doing it will lead to controversy and they will lead to other problems. The, the system, there is no a, fatal, a good way. Flawed. It's yeah, fatally
0: flawed, Exactly.
1: It? And, You're and right. It always I mean, has I, been.
0: I, I, I agree with what you say with regards to, you know, how that would cause a whole different set of problems which in itself suggests that, well, the whole thing was a bad idea. Maybe maybe the solution is simply this. Whenever the VR are reviewing a decision, we just actually play Valerie, the song, in the stadium <laughs> at the time. Everyone knows where they are. They give a little jig about to Amy Winehouse or whoever, and, uh, and then when the decision comes through, everyone feels happy again
1: anyway. I think it should be the Steve Winwood version if we're going to do that. Sh- okay,
0: Stevie Winwood's fine by me, fine by me. Duncan. Quiz question for you now. Quiz question for all of you listeners as well. I'm going to read you a series of seasons and then I'm going to ask you what they all have in common with regards to this season. So bear with me for the numbers, but it's worth getting to the end. Are you ready? Here we go. 92, 93, 93, 94, 94, 95, 95 96, 96, 97, 97, 98, 98, 99, 99, 2000. 2001, 2001, 02, 03, 04, 04, 05, 05 06, 08, 09, 10, 11, 13, 14, 14, 15, 15, 16, 16, 17, and 2017 to 18. What do all of those seasons have in common with comparison to Manchester United's season so far? Duncan, I'm going to put it to you. Do you have the answer? Uh, well, I already know the answer. So, because you, well, you're you're omnipotent. Of course, you know the answer.
1: <laughs> um, all of those seasons, Manchester United were awarded less penalties in the entire season than they have been awarded so far in this season, and we're not even into November.
0: Well, well, well. If ever there was a conspiracy theory that wanted to be have justification in the facts. There you have it. Why, Duncan? I mean, what's going on? Is this VAR as well? Because I think we do have had more penalty decisions this season in the Premier League than any other stage in this season in the last 27 years. Well, uh, look, World Cup. VR was uh, certainly, well, VR, sorry, we should say VR was responsible for both penalty decisions in the game against Norwich City, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, so you've got two there and one that even Manchester United's manager recognises was wrong. Um, we know that VAR produces penalty decisions. Um, last World Cup, first World Cup with VAR, massively increased number of penalty decisions compared to previous World Cups. So there's definitely that element. I think there's, there is an element in the way Manchester United play. So as we know, Solskjaer's moved to this um, fast forward counter-attacking system, um, very much put his emphasis on that. So he's got Rashford up front. He's got Anthony Martial up front. He's got Daniel James up front. So he's got three players who are quick and who, when the system works, are likely to get in behind defenders um, who are likely to therefore foul them. So I think they are set up to play in a way that will produce more penalties. Um, So there's definitely an element in that. Um, They've got Daniel James, who um, has been demonstrated um, and has already been booked, uh, I think, on multiple occasions for simulation uh, this season. So um, he's a player who um, does have a tendency to go to ground um, and has won penalties, including at least one um, that his own manager says shouldn't have been awarded. Um, some people argue that one of the problems with VAR is it gives referees a second chance to benefit um, the bigger teams. And uh, I haven't seen a proper statistical analysis of that yet, um, but I'd be fascinated to see it. And the, the theory um, is certainly a credible one. Um, I, again, you've got that advantage that referees have for uh, the home team Uh, which is scientifically demonstrated, Um, it's pretty clear that you get a bias towards bigger teams in general with refereeing. So therefore, the addition of VAR should help those bigger teams. We've got a very notable example in the Champions League this season when um, Club Brug were 2-0 up against Real Madrid and Sergio Ramos um, scored from an offside position, um, which... The, the linesman flag had had gone up, um, which you know linesmen are told to keep their flags down if it's marginal, and uh, is that that goal was reinstated by VAR even when the, the the video evidence shown by VAR as supposed proof that he was on site um, seemed to indicate that he was still offside. So so you've got a, a an example of of uh, VAR apparently favouring uh, a far more prestigious club in that situation so, so oh, I think Duncan, all... we
0: should point out Duncan
1: that the example of um,
0: Carroll Road on Sunday did not advantage Manchester in any way because the penalties were so rubbish <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's true um, as, as Solskjaer <laughs> said um, Marcus Rashford did the honourable thing by missing the penalty because he felt it was uh, incorrectly awarded um, a nice bit of humour from, from Solskjaer there um, Cheek the, in the region that he is just, but let, let's look. factor all this huge number of penalties that Manchester United have been awarded in this season and let's ignore the argument over whether they're, they're being favoured or not. You can still bring it back to the facts that Solskjaer, despite all these penalties, um, has three wins in 15 Premier League games and his team have only scored more than two goals in the game uh, twice in the last 20 matches. And that's with um, uh, what must be a record number of penalties this early in uh, Manchester United season.
0: Incredible it is. And, um, of course, news as well that Paul Pogba, um, once described as Manchester United's talisman, I think for about two weeks, um, will be out until December. And um, it seems, Duncan, that that little break he had in Dubai on his bike with his personal trainer hasn't really seen me done the trick.
1: Doesn't, I mean, this is from Solskjaer himself saying that he doesn't expect Pogba to be back until December. And um, look, I think the most notable thing about this is we've talked a lot about how Solskjaer had said that having a proper pre season with his training methods would make the team more robust and make them able to play better football. And what's uh, resulted is a rash of soft tissue injuries i think the total now is at 12 players who have uh, 12 first team players have suffered injuries already at some point um during this season but in pogba's case he was brought back from the ankle injury he is now expected to be out with until december um, to play a league cup game against rochdale and aggravated the injury and is now in a position where he is going to be unavailable for most of the rest of the year. Now that to me is rank bad management um you know he if you have a player who is not fully recovered from an ankle injury and you put them into a game which is of very marginal importance. I mean, if you look at the side that Solskjaer fielded against Rochdale, he had a lot of academy graduates, a lot of inexperienced players in that side. He, you know, he made Axel Toonzeby the captain ahead of Pogba in that match. I think Toonzeby was playing his seventh or start playing his seventh game, first team game for Manchester United. Incredibly inexperienced to be given that role. Um, Yet he was prepared to risk a player who he regards as his most creative and and most important player in midfield. That's just a bad managerial decision. And it's one that he and the the team are are, um, paying the cost of at present and are likely to continue paying the cost of through the series of games. So I, I calculate if he comes back for the first game in December, he will miss 12 matches Um, as a result of that decision to play him against Rochdale in the League Cup
0: Well only time will tell if uh, Solskjaer is made to regret that decision given Pogba regardless of um, inconsistency of form obviously a very very talented player and someone Manchester United could certainly be doing with uh, during this run of results which they are enjoying or not enjoying uh, it's Monday's podcast, which means it's time for heroes and villains. Um, I'm going to give you my villain of the piece for the weekend, and Duncan is going to go for a hero, because he doesn't normally get to pick the hero. Uh, and when he does, he normally picks an anti-hero. Uh, fairly obvious choice for this one, people. Granite Xhaka, a man whose first name probably told Arsenal everything about what they need to know about his lack of mobility. Um And certainly he's not as hard as that particular igneous rock either, uh, as he showed when uh, being substituted in the 2-2 draw with Crystal Palace. He was booed by the crowd. He then uh, jeered sarcastically back, cupped his ear, um, told them, the supporters, as in his own supporters, where they should go in non-certain terms, and then took his shirt off uh, and went straight down the tunnel, I don't care about you know, sympathy for this and that and the other thing. I just think that as a football player, being handsomely paid uh, by your club and being supported by your fans, that's no way to behave, especially as you're the captain. So, Granite Xhaka, you're my Villain of the Week. Duncan, I invite you to tell us your hero of my the he- last few days.
1: My hero of the week um, for the first time is um, Billy Gunnar Solskjaer.
0: Um, ah, music to the man's ears.
1: <laughs> well he doesn't as he said after the match at Norwich City he doesn't listen to, to what the media are saying doesn't pay attention to it so I think you will be bothered but I, I very much respect the fact that he uh, went on record to say the penalty team his team got was should not have been given um, and good sort of criticism of VAR there he said I don't think it's a penalty because when it takes two minutes to make the decision it's not clear and obvious Um so for me, it's the wrong one. And then he made that um, quite a good joke about Marcus Rashford doing the honourable thing. So he definitely deserves a Hero of the Week award. Um, he might not have much time to get many more of them. So let's give him this one.
0: Oligon and Solskjaer, sure. we will pop the audio file into your email as soon as it's ready, uh, because that's one for your mantelpiece along with your several donkeys that you already have. This has been Monday's Transfer Window podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we invite you for Wednesday's podcast to, of course, submit your questions for Duncan and I. who will be very happy to answer them as best we can. Um, it could be about Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, anything you like. Any any subject is not uh, one that we will not be happy to discuss as long, of course, it's both legal and clean. Um As far as today is concerned, we've been very, very pleased to have your company. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed it. And of course, please continue to engage us in the debate and join the debate as well. Tell your mates to come join the debate. Uh, We are available at Transfer Podcast, at Duncan Castles, and at Garbo SJ. As ever, if you're enjoying what you hear, please log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. It gets bigger, it gets better, and that's only good for all of us. For me, I'm from Duncan. Until Wednesday, we will see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening.